From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we're still thinking about Barbara Ehrenreich, who died last week. She was one of our best. We'll listen to an interview from 2002 about Nickel and Dimed, her unforgettable book, which had just been published when we spoke. But first, how abortion rights won in the deep red state of Kansas. Amy Littlefield went to Wichita for the vote last month. Today, she reports on what she learned there. That's coming up in a minute. Remember how Kansas was the first state to vote directly on abortion after the Supreme Court overturned Roe? Remember how Republicans stack the deck in their favor? Remember how then Kansans surprised everyone by voting to keep abortion rights in the Constitution? The vote was 59% to 41%. Amy Littlefield went to Kansas to report on the election for the nation and see how that victory had been organized and won. She's the nation's abortion access correspondent. Amy Littlefield, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's great to be with you again. Well, the amendment to strip the right to abortion from the Kansas Constitution was supposed to pass without a hitch. Explain what the Republican plan was. So Republicans in the Kansas legislature had really stacked the deck um, against abortion rights. And they had scheduled a vote on this anti-abortion amendment to the state constitution for an August primary, when turnout tends to be low, and when there were some exciting Republican contests that they knew were going to draw out more Republican voters. In Kansas, about 30% of the electorate is actually unaffiliated. They're not registered with either the Democratic or the Republican Party. So these are folks who aren't used to voting in primaries and maybe didn't realize that they could actually come out and vote on this referendum, even though they couldn't vote for party candidates. And so there was a tremendous amount of organizing that had to go on to counteract um, the sort of strategic decisions <laughs> that Republicans who really have a lock on, on the legislature, um, the decisions they'd made to, to um, you know, stack the deck in their favor. And that just makes this victory for abortion rights in Kansas all the more astounding. And, and one other preliminary question, how come abortion in Kansas was protected by the state constitution? That's a great question. So in Kansas, um, the state legislature has passed quite a few restrictions on abortion access. And in response to one of those restrictions, the state Supreme Court in 2019 ruled that there actually was a right to abortion in the state constitution. And so that has protected abortion rights. That state Supreme Court ruling has protected abortion rights in Kansas. Now, of course, there are still plenty of absurd restrictions on abortion in Kansas that patients have had to contend with. Um, for example, when I was in the clinic in Wichita that I visited, you know, on the wall in the counseling room are all these certificates of ministry that counselors have had to get because they either have to be social workers or trained ministers. But the fundamental right to an abortion has been upheld by the state Supreme Court in Kansas. And so this was an effort by the Republican-dominated legislature to make an end run around that decision and to try to convince voters or 
enough voters in this August primary under you know voter suppression and all the rest to to repeal um, that right from the state constitution, and it failed on an absolutely massive scale. And this referendum was put together before the Supreme Court overturned Roe. What happened in Kansas when that news came down? Perhaps the Republicans, the one thing that they did not anticipate was the timing here, right, of Roe v. Wade being overturned about five weeks um, before this election. And what happened was so stunning and immediate. On the day that the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, voter registration in Kansas surged a thousand percent. And And, you know, what I really saw when I was there were signs that people who had not been politicized before, people who had maybe been casually pro-choice, had been quietly pro-choice, but didn't want their neighbors to know about it or weren't really doing much about it, were out organizing and having conversations with people for the first time in their lives. And that turned out to be so powerful. And uh, what was the message of the vote no official campaign. It was, I learned from your piece in The Nation, it was run by something, a group called Kansans for Constitutional Freedom. What was their vote no message? Kansans for Constitutional Freedom had come up with to try to, and when you say that name, it might, even listeners might think for a second, wait a minute, (laughs) that sounds like it could be, you know, a, a Republican campaign. It sort of could be anything, right? I mean, the idea of constitutional freedom is sort of a Rorschach test, depending on which side yes, of the political yes. spectrum you're on. But their surveys of, of voters had indicated that if they weren't for a message that said, we need to get the government out of people's personal decisions, and that respected that people might have a range of feelings and experiences about abortion, but that a majority of voters do not want politicians making that decision for people. They went with that message because they thought maybe that was going to convince people across the political spectrum. And so the message was really about keeping government interference out of people's, you know, medical and emotional decision making. I talked with campaign spokesperson Ashley All, and one of the things she said that I thought was really interesting is that for a lot of people, abortion is not a partisan issue. It's often viewed within a partisan frame, right? But that hasn't always been the case, right? Republicans one way, Democrats the other way, that's it. And so people are supposed to vote with their party. Well, people don't necessarily feel that way. Their views on abortion are shaped by their personal experiences, by, by what they themselves have done, by what their you know mothers, daughters, loved ones have done. And, um, you know, we talked, for example, when I was out with the canvassers in Wichita to a registered Republican who had been going through fertility treatments. She said, you know, she was trying to convince her mother and 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 to, to vote no, because she didn't see a distinction between, you know, the embryos that would be destroyed during fertility treatments in that process and, and an abortion, right? And so this was very, very personal to people. Some of our friends are uneasy about making this what's really a libertarian argument. We want freedom from government, freedom from government interference with decisions about reproduction. That is an argument that in general, freedom from government is the Reagan message, the Republican message. And some of our friends are very uneasy about adopting that to this cause. What do you say to that? 
I think that is a very fair critique. And I think there were people engaged in the defense of abortion rights and engaged in the no campaign who would wholeheartedly agree with that critique. And that's why I think it's so important to acknowledge in the analysis of what went right in Kansas, that there was a range of messaging that was used here and that the official message from the campaign was far from the only one that was reaching voters. So my favorite example is that a a group of youth activists in Kansas came up with this campaign called Vote Nay, but it's spelled N-E-I-G-H. It was a Western (laughs) horse-themed campaign. They had events like Ponies to the Poles, which actually (laughs) involved real-life ponies, okay? They had this very pink sort of appealing um, display and graphics. They did a lot of funny social media posts with memes and they were totally unapologetic and totally, you know, they were talking about abortion, right? (laughs) They were not trying to hide that. They were not using the term constitutional freedom like the official campaign was. They were talking about abortion and they were talking to young people. And, you know, their leader told me that they understood that people would oppose this anti-abortion amendment. The trick was they needed to get people out to actually vote, right? And so this fun, um, lighthearted campaign was just one example of another strategy that was used. I mean, there was so much grassroots messaging going on on top of that. I talk in my piece about a, a woman I met named Kathy Griffin, who was standing out on the street corner with a sign that said, laws don't stop abortion. She had herself had had an abortion many years ago. And so her, you know, handmade sign um, was one of the messages that was reaching people. I saw someone standing on a highway overpass with a sign they had made that said birth control is next. You know, some had Ruth Bader Ginsburg on them. I mean, there just were a range, depending on your interest, <laughs> there were a range of different messages that you could latch on to. Whereas the campaign to advance this anti-abortion amendment, actually, their their messaging was quite unified. And I thought that was a sign of strength, actually, for the Vote No campaign. A little history here. Kansas made abortion history once before, 30 years ago, 1991, when the anti-abortion group called Operation Rescue, led by Randall Terry, launched what they called the Summer of Mercy and targeted Wichita, which of course is where 18 years later in 2009, Dr. George Tiller was murdered. He was medical director of women's health care services and abortion provider in Wichita. Tell us about the so-called Summer of Mercy in 1991 and how it changed the Republican Party of Kansas. The Summer of Mercy was this hugely pivotal political event, the impact of which would only unfold in in the years to come. Randall Terry, the director of this militant wing of the anti-abortion movement, Operation Rescue, called for supporters to descend on Wichita, which is where Dr. George Tiller is one of the few people offering abortions for people who needed it later in pregnancy. The Summer of Mercy has been described by some chroniclers as an anti-abortion Woodstock. I mean, this absolutely massive event with gatherings in the stadium in the city. 
There were over 2,600 arrests during the Summer of Mercy. It was a, I believe, 46-day-long campaign of blockades. People were crawling under cars. The clinics actually heeded the request of police and shut down for a week. And it was this moment where, as Thomas Frank describes it in his book, What's the Matter with Kansas, where the anti-abortion movement seemed to sort of revel in its own power. But the most important thing that came out of this event is that people were being signed up to run for local office and encouraged to run for local office. And that was this pivotal moment that actually changed the direction of Kansas politics for years to come. A lot of people were sort of radicalized by this anti-abortion gathering and politicized by this anti-abortion gathering and the speeches they heard and the rush they got from being arrested or dragged out from under a car or out of a blockade. And a lot of those people went on to run for local office in Kansas. And they took over Republican county committees. They took over eventually the state legislature. In his book, What's the Matter with Kansas, Thomas Frank writes of the Summer of Mercy that this was where the Kansas conservative movement got an idea of its own strength. This was where it achieved critical mass. And what I think is so striking and important to realize about where that critical mass was channeled is that it went into local politics. So in Sedgwick County, which is where Wichita is, abortion opponents had held less than half of the positions in the county's Republican leadership. After the Summer of Mercy, they surged to an 83% majority. And that pattern repeated elsewhere in the state. It, it would repeat you know, across the country in the years and decades to come. The, the religious right conservatives who had been sort of radicalized by their participation in the Summer of Mercy began to take over the Republican Party and pull it further and further to the right. Coming back to the present, on Election Day, the beginning of August, you were in Wichita. You went to the Re to Reformation Lutheran Church. That's the place where George Tiller was murdered. What was it like there on Election Day? I mean, this is such a historic place where Dr. George Tiller went to church and where he was gunned down. And of course, this is a deep and important moment in, in the history of Wichita and something that people in the state remember. And so when I found out that this church was a polling place, I really wanted to be there on election day. Again, this was an August primary. Okay, a lot of people were on vacation. A lot of people don't vote in primaries. The turnout tends to be half of what it is in a general election. But when I got to this church, there were people lining up all the way through the foyer where Tiller had been killed out the double doors, into the parking lot, this massive line on a boiling hot day. I mean, anyone who's been to Kansas understands what early August in Kansas means. Okay, it was hot. And waiting in line to vote. And of course, many of them understood the significance of this place. And I met one woman there who was a former friend of Dr. Tiller's. She told me, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, but I am voting no. And I think there were enough people like her <laughs> and, and enough, you know, young people catalyzed by the Vote Nay campaign and enough people of all stripes in Kansas who turned out with that memory of anti-abortion violence and terrorism fresh in their minds, even though it was many years ago, that they defeated this anti-abortion amendment. 
While you were in Wichita, you spent some time at Trust Women, an abortion provider. Tell us about the people who came there for abortions. Trust Women is Dr. Tiller's former abortion clinic in Wichita, which was reopened after his death. And I spent a day there the day before this historic vote in Kansas. Patients were there from Oklahoma, from Texas. One had paid $800 to fly to Kansas with her husband. One had driven nine hours from Houston and had to be there again for work the next day. One started out from Dallas at 2 a.m. And towards the middle of the day, I went over to the front desk and asked about the patients who hadn't made it to their appointments. And I was told there were patients who were scheduled that day who had no-showed, who were from Tulsa and Dallas and smaller towns in Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas, towns that were, you know, as many as nine hours deep into this sort of solid wall of states where there's no longer a right to legal abortion. So I think it's important to remember that a huge number of people just are not getting the abortions they need. And some of the people who had not arrived in Wichita at the clinic that day were people who were very close to the legal limit and who were probably missing their last opportunity to get an abortion. And let's also talk about uh, the vote. I looked up the Democratic vote in Kansas. Biden got 42 percent. The referendum no vote got 59%. So obviously there's a lot of people, you've already made this clear, who were not Democrats. What do we know about who they were, where they were? I think it will be some time before we're able to sort of analyze the exact breakdown of, of how this victory happened. But I think we've always known that pro-choice people are a majority and that that's true even in deep red states like Kansas. The abortion rights movement has understood for a long time, and poll after poll has confirmed this, that they are the majority, that most people support the legal right to abortion and disagree with what the Supreme Court just did in overturning Roe v. Wade. And so the question has always been about how to get those people to vote, how to get them to mobilize, how to get them to start contesting the base of, of local power that ultra conservatives often have in city councils and school committees and state legislatures, of course, and how to really mobilize that, that you know, sleeping giant, as it were, of the pro-choice majority. And I think Kansas shows us that that is starting to happen. Amy Littlefield, her report from Wichita is featured in the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read it online at thenation.com. Thank you, Amy. This is great. Thank you so much, John. We're still thinking about Barbara Ehrenreich. She died last week. She was 81, and she was one of our best. She transformed social justice journalism, writing 20 books, including Nickel and Dimed, her undercover report about trying to survive on low-wage work. It changed the lives of millions of readers and helped launch a new movement for a higher minimum wage. She also wrote dozens of pieces for The Nation. We spoke with her regularly when her new books came out, starting in 2002, 
when we spoke with her on KPFK in Los Angeles about nickel and dimed. Barbara Ehrenreich, the question you take up is, how does anyone live today on the wages available to unskilled workers? And the answer that you come up with briefly is that it's almost impossible. What were the rules you set for yourself in the beginning? Well, my initial rules were that I had to um, find the cheapest place I could to live in, but consistent with living indoors and, you know, some degree of uh, safety. Okay. Um, that was, that kind of rule got violated a little bit at certain times. And then I had to take the best paying job I could get. And my third rule was I had to try, you know, I had to work hard and, you know, try my best and not get fired for some silly reason. So the first job you got was uh, waitressing close to home in Key West. Uh, tell us what the what the work was like and what the money was like. Well, uh, I think any lot of people probably listening have served in restaurants uh, at some point in their lives. I I had done so in when I was a teenager and in college. Me too. Okay, <laughs> so you know you know what it's like. It's um it's pretty exhausting work. You're always on your feet. You're running a lot of the time. And even if the place isn't full of customers, you've got all your side work to keep up with. But I, I knew that to begin with. Wages are pathetic. Um, wages are two dollars and change an hour. Wait a minute. Uh, wait a minute. Two dollars. Two dollars, and um, in one place it was fifteen cents an hour. I what, place, what what about? Wait a minute. What about the minimum wage laws? How, apply. how can apply they pay because, you? Uh, servers are tipped. Ah. Uh, so you're you're it's that's. You know, that's where your money comes from. I, I hope everybody realizes this. The tipping isn't optional for the server, uh, at least from the server's perspective, uh, because you absolutely have to, get, you have to get that to, you know, even get up to the minimum wage. So how much were you able to make with tips working as a waitress in Kiwi? Well, I, I was in some pretty, um, let's see, dismal places. Uh, and I'm not young enough to get the really good jobs. You have to be... Uh, young and attractive to get the really high tip jobs, and I'm, I'm not experienced. You know, I my experience is decades out of date. So I got uh, not great jobs in places with um, one place was very slow. There wasn't enough business, I, so I left that job, went to another, uh, which was higher volume, but the tips were still awfully low, averaging around ten percent. So I, uh, you know, I made I averaged seven seven fifty an hour somewhere in there as a waitress. Did your coworkers um, have any secret economies, any tricks to making this this kind of uh, money uh, last longer that that middle class people don't know about? Well, no. <laughs> you know, I sort of thought maybe I'll find out. Maybe there's some secret to this that I can't guess. Yeah. Unless I get it out there and do it, uh, but. No, I found, well, you know, there are strategies you can imagine. Uh, you know, the most common one is that you have to have more than one low-wage earner in the family. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that can mean grown children or even teenage children as well as a spouse, something like that. So you try to patch it together that way. Another strategy is um, taking more than one job. Uh, and I did try that, too. Um, and I have to admit, I could not do two demand, you know, physically demanding jobs in one day. Uh, I was warned <laughs> that it would. I was warned by um, a manager that it would be impossible, and uh, she was right. But a lot of people uh, do, you know, combine. Usually, 
a job and a half, eight hours and six hours or something like that. Very, very difficult. But I also found that a lot of people, you know, that I was working alongside weren't really quite making it. At least a couple of people turned out to be actually homeless. Although I wouldn't have guessed it because I just, you know, have stereotypes in my mind of how homeless people should look. And these people look fine and they, you know, you can find places to shower uh, very often, public places, and come to work clean. But the odd thing was that these people didn't consider themselves homeless because if as long as you have a car or a, I mean, or a van or something to sleep in, uh, that's not really considered absolutely homeless. When you applied for these jobs as waitress or later a hotel housekeeper, wasn't it obvious that you were a middle-class, educated uh, intellectual? I, I guess I thought, too, that there was a danger that I would be, uh, you know, that I might stand out and uh, in some way. But no. Never. The only way I stood <laughs> out in every job was that I was the least, you know, always a new person and had a lot to learn. I had to sort of I kind of minimize my uh, experience in education a little bit on application forms. I didn't put down that I have a Ph.D. Uh, I didn't think that would help me get jobs because, <laughs> you know, they think, what's wrong with her, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I described myself as a divorced homemaker reentering the workforce after several years. And that's true as far as it goes, right? No, I'm a freelance writer. It's not the same as having jobs. Um, <laughs> and and what was the state of uh, sort of uh, class solidarity and class conflict on the job start, starting in Key West? Almost everybody I worked alongside with worked really hard and really put their hearts into their, their work and took a lot of pride in, in doing a good job. On the other side of it, though, was that um, management tended not to respect uh, the amount of work and effort uh, they were getting uh, from from people, uh, and um, I was I was astounded really at how badly uh, people are treated. Um, what do you, What do you mean badly treated? Well, first, for one thing, you have no privacy in in uh, the low wage workplace, and actually, a lot of medium wage workplaces too these days, uh, you know, from the beginning when you just have to go through a drug test and uh, a personality test uh, to get the job. I mean, I think those things are invasions of privacy. On my one of my very first days at, at work in one of these waitressing jobs, and this applies to all the other places too, I was warned that my purse could be searched at any time by management. And, you know, I couldn't believe it. But that's true. Management has a right to search your purse or your backpack or whatever if it's on his property. You are subject to all kinds of ridiculous rules, rules like no gossiping, <laughs> or in at Walmart it was no talking. <laughs> wow. I mean, you could, of course, you could talk to other people just if it was about the work in a, in a very brief way, but you were not ever to chat with a fellow worker, even if there was no, you know, urgent thing to do at that moment. So you had to sneak to do that. Or rules like um, no eating or drinking anything, which um, was really an unhealthy kind of rule at one place I, I worked, which was a house cleaning service, and we could be cleaning one giant house for four hours and be... Um, you know, not allowed to have a bite of anything or a sip of water. 
during that time. Then there so, were also the rules about going to the bathroom. Well, well, I thought that there would be breaks <laughs> everywhere. I thought breaks were a right. But no, um, there is... Um, OSHA says you have the right to go to the bathroom in a timely fashion, but that's not something that is enforced um, very uh, energetically. Sometimes you have to sneak to take a leak. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Garrison Keeler. Uh, Barbara, you moved to Minneapolis where people are nice and where wages are high. Uh, You applied for a job at Walmart. Uh, What happened then? Well, let me say, it's not that easy to get a job at Walmart. (laughs) Uh, There's quite a a tricky uh, personality test you have to get through. And uh, I was told before I took it, you know, don't worry, there are no right or wrong answers, just whatever you think. Well, then the uh, personnel manager came back from the computer where she graded my personality and said, uh, I had some answers wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was wrong with your personality from Walmart's well, point he, of view? My strategy with these, these tests was to give the obvious right answer. You know, it's usually pretty an- obvious. You know, if the, if the proposition in the, in the test is, I have stolen the following amount, check dollar amount below, <laughs> of goods from my employers in the last year. I see what you mean. You know, it's going to be zero. <laughs> yeah. Or if the, the, another uh, test proposition you often run into is it's, it's always better to work when you're a little bit high. Mm, that's, not, a tough, <laughs> that's a tough one to know the right answer yeah. to. But the one that I got, one of the ones I got wrong, and I don't remember the um, others quite so exactly, you have to follow all rules to the letter at all times. Uh, agree, and how do you agree strongly, and you know, very strongly up to totally strongly. And I put, um, I think I put very strongly because I thought, you know, if I put went too, was too blatant, they'd think I was faking out the test. But no, the correct answer was totally. <laughs> <laughs> Very um, strongly is the wrong answer to the question, how, how strongly do you believe in obeying the rules? Yeah, now see, I didn't want to look like too much of a suck-up, but you can Big never mistake. be too much of a suck-up. <laughs> Big mistake. Nevertheless, you got this job at Walmart. Now, uh, you say you made mistakes in Minnesota. What were your mistakes? I think I could have possibly gotten a better-paying job and was offered what appeared to be a better-paying job by another big-box store. But the thing that kind of really scared me about it was it was an 11-hour shift. Now, that has to be illegal. Uh, and, I, and I said, how can this be? And they said, well, do you want the job or not? you mm-hmm. want to work full-time or not? Maybe I should have taken that one and just tried to keep on my feet for 11 hours at a time. I don't think I could have done it, though. So instead, you took the Walmart job and you went to the Walmart orientation. I must say this was, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of your book. Yes. Well, you know, Walmart is more than a corporation. It's a cult. Uh, <laughs> okay. It takes uh, an eight-hour orientation, no matter how lowly your job. You know, people, greeters, everybody go through this orientation uh, this went stretched from 3 p.m. till almost 11 p.m. And one of the most interesting things to me about it, in addition to the cult-like things, you know, the many speeches from Sam Walton video, on video, um, who is dead, um, was uh, a 12-minute um, video uh, warning us about unions. Oh yes. So, yeah. and and what what do they tell you is is uh, 
the union situation at Walmart? Well, they, they said there's a danger that unions are often trying to uh, get a foothold at Walmart, and that we had to watch out for that because unions would take away our rights, not that we had any, <laughs> okay. and, uh, and would, of course, charge ridiculously high dues and so on. It was very frustrating to sit through because, of course, there was no rebuttal, no alternative viewpoint presented. And and uh, after uh, going through the eight-hour Walmart orientation, Barbara Ehrenreich, at last you went to work, and you uh, sold the, the famous Kathy Lee collection. Yes, well, I at first was quite thrilled to be in ladies' wear, thinking I would be in a position to be giving fashion tips to <laughs> Midwesterners who you're, you're could see- use some fashion tips. <laughs> Actually, it turned out to be one of the hardest jobs in the store because... Women try on clothes, and in Walmart, they try them on by the shopping cart full. The shopping cart full? Oh, yeah. You shop with a shopping cart, even in the clothing departments there. And my job uh, was to put everything back in its exact place. Uh Uh-huh. The things people had tried on, as well as things they had tossed on the floor or uh, secreted in the wrong parts of the department. And this was very mentally taxing. Uh, John, the one this, I never call any job unskilled anymore. Uh, to learn where everything went, and then just when I had that all memorized and I knew the the whole map of ladies' wear and all the different clothing lines in it, you know, Kathy Lee, Jordache, Faded Glory, White Stag, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, the manager would change the whole thing <laughs> because they, you know, they just do that in uh, retail. One last question. You took these jobs under a bit of a false pretense. Um, did you ever come out to, to any of your coworkers? And, and if so, what was their response to finding out that really you were a middle-class writer on assignment? Uh, well, yes, I, that deception weighed heavily on me, and I was always very anxious before coming out to, you know, someone, um, you know, you, or a few people who I knew especially well, at the end of my career in a particular job. And I didn't know what response to get I would get, but what I got was quite surprising, was people were really underwhelmed when I'd say, you know, I'm really a writer. <laughs> oh. Uh, <laughs> you know, everybody's a writer. Uh-huh. Uh, anybody who's literate is a writer. Mm-hmm. And I did run into people who were writing poems or a journal or even a book in one case, uh, you know, we have a lot of, you know, maybe assumptions about low-wage people that are really wrong. And it didn't change their image, I think, that much of me as a waitress or a house cleaner. Barbara Ehrenreich's classic essay, Nickel and Dimed, started out as an essay in Harper's Magazine in 1999 and became a best-selling book in 2002. That's when we recorded this interview. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. 
and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.